Cup of Go for January 5, 2024. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in just 15 minutes per week. I'm Jonathan Hall. And I'm Shai Nechmad. That sounds wrong. 2023 was so... <laughs> so long ago. Yeah. Well, welcome to the future. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Shana Tova. Snovum Godem. Snastapayashem, everybody, etc., etc. May your builds be fresh. Your caches be warm, your compilers be fast, and your linter errors unduplicated. Amazing. Glad you're thinking on your feet because I'm kind of sitting here in a daze. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting here in Guatemala. I'm jet lagged. I don't know what's this, what day it is. I don't know if it's day or night. I'll even let our uh, listeners in on a little secret. Jonathan said it's January 5. He meant 5th, <laughs> but uh, it's actually January 4th. Because uh, we're recording this yeah. the day before. So if there's amazing news in the Go world tomorrow, you won't hear about it here. But we do have a bunch of news to talk about after we you know, came back from vacation. So I hope you had a nice holiday break uh, and that you didn't get coal in your CI pipelines from uh, evil <laughs> GitHub Santa. And uh, let's talk about what happened in Go. Not a lot. People are on vacations all over, but stuff did happen. Well, we always have a backlog, so we're going to get through some of it. Yeah. So I think right off the bat, we can mention, we already mentioned this in the last episode of the year, uh, but 1.22 RC1 was scheduled for release. It now has been released. So if you're the kind of person who likes to play with new shiny things, 1.22 RC1 is super new and super shiny. Mm-hmm. And the what they're asking for is, you know, if you have production load tests, unit tests, stuff like that, they want you to, you know, play around with it with the new version just to help testing, which is totally invaluable. It's really good open source work. If you're looking for some open source clout in your in your resume, it's one of the easiest ways to do it and one of the most productive. I think I mentioned this briefly last time, but something you can do that's really easy if you want to try this without spending a lot of effort. You already have a CI job that runs your unit tests on probably Go 1.21. Just duplicate that job and have it run also against 1.22.rc1. Yeah, I'm wondering why they release it on like, you know, remote cars. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't know. That's a really bad one. We're going we're gonna to get better. Yeah, yeah. It's better than the one I saw on Reddit. Uh, where I, It's so bad. I'm not even going to. It's like, how do I get this project working on my computer? And the senior is like, go run. And then the junior, the intern is like, okay, starts running, start jogging outside or whatever. Um, yeah, which, that's bad. Yeah, but the the heckler in the comments was the the, the silver lining, where he's like, "Sorry, but I'm going to defer my laughter." Wow! So like, <laughs> a go burn. All right, so we have one twenty two RC one, uh, and go play around with it and report some bugs back. We also have a, a vulnerability that was uh, fixed and released. We mentioned that, but we didn't know the details, and they're actually pretty interesting. So the vulnerability sounds like it's scary because it's an X crypto SSH. And, you know, Ooh. immediately it's like, oh, no, SSH is unsafe. Well, oh, my God. But what do I do? But it's a protocol weakness, which is pretty interesting. When you set up an SSH connection, you have a bunch of like preamble messages to support backwards compatibility. Because let's imagine that I'm using a really old SSH client and Jonathan set up a really brand new SSH server, right? Sounds like me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 1.22 RC1 SSH server running on the uh, <laughs> latest uh, Arch uh, Linux uh, build fresh off the presses. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you still want to allow me to connect. So there's a bunch of sort of preamble messages where we figure out what's the maximum level of security we can set up. And there's a protocol weakness where if you drop some of these messages as a man-in-the-middle attacker, meaning you already have like getting to a man-in-the-middle point in the network is already a pretty strong security primitive. Like it's not easy to get into a man-in-the-middle position. Yeah, like, I don't know, attack the router between like, or or something like that between the client and the server. You can make this channel slightly less secure because you can prevent uh, the client from transmitting like some SSH2 message info, blah, blah, blah. So you're disabling a bunch of security features. So it's very interesting theoretically, but not super important. Because it already requires to be you to the attacker to be men in the middle, and even if they can do it, they it's not like they can read all the traffic. When I saw a vulnerability in X, a crypto SSH, I was like, oh my god! 
but it's a lot less severe than I originally thought. Still worth upgrading, and thanks all for the team for fixing it. But it's a protocol uh, weakness that doesn't has a lot of security primitives required and has a very low impact. So it'll probably get a low CVVS uh, score anyway. CCVS score, sorry. Uh, so that was fixed. If you're into security and stuff like that, you can go read the patch. It's actually pretty interesting. Uh, link in the show notes as always. Uh, so that's the important releases we have online, right? Well, they're all important, aren't they? <laughs> they're just the official ones. Yeah, I guess these are the official ones. Well, if, but if all releases are important, none are, right? Sort of, uh, what's the movie called? The superhero family movie? You know what I'm talking about? The Incredibles? Incredibles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If everybody's super, no one is. <laughs> Classes in Python be like, all right, let's talk on some uh, about some other releases. Yeah, okay. So here's one that I've, I've been uh, waiting for for a while. Not because I use it, but I, I do think it's a great uh, tool and I want to learn, I want to start using it. Q, C-U-E or qlang.org. That's not going to be difficult to spell out. Hey, all our listeners, just go for, look for Qlang. No, no, not Qlang, Qlang. Yeah. <laughs> People no, don't no, not think not about Q-Lang. this the other, Yeah, there's only 16 ways to spell Q. Yeah. I imagine I registered all of them anyway, so it's probably fine. Mm-hmm. But Q0.7.0 has been released, and we're hoping to have uh, somebody from the Q team on uh, to interview later this month, so stick around for that. But for now, we're mentioning the release, uh, and uh, I'm not going to really talk about the details of the release, because I imagine for most people, the language itself is new, so I'm going to talk about that. What is Q, or what is the Q language? Um, it's an open source language. Uh, it's written in Go, of course. That's why we're talking about it here. Um, but it lets it simplifies data validation and configuration. Uh, I actually su- attended a presentation by one of the original uh, authors of Q at the Amsterdam Go meetup about three or four years ago when he was talking about it in the very early stages and demonstrating how it can be used to simplify uh, complex and repetitive configuration. Uh, so you could, you can, in that sense, use it sort of as like a templating engine that's better than a templating engine for like managing Kubernetes manifests or large YAML forests of configuration and stuff like that. But it does much more than that. It does data validation. You can define schemas and it works with all sorts of languages. So it's not like, like JSON schema. You're using JSON. This is much more extensive than that. You can use it for. For YAML, for I'm sure, I imagine any kind of configuration file, Apache config files, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. The the underlying engine being Go is is really promising when you have a open source sort of DevOpsy configuration e sort of project. Just imagining it lining up really well with the rest of the ecosystem. You know what I mean? With being able to do queue scripting like declaratively over data, it looks really strong. But I have to admit, it also looks kind of intimidating. I'm already kind of scared opening all the DevOps folders, looking at HCL and YAML and JSONs and being scared of dependencies that, that I can't see. On one end, this promises to unify it, but on the other end, it looks a bit scary. So I hope the learning curve will be worth it, but I'll definitely take a look. So if you want to check it out, link in the show notes. Another sort of release that, at least for me, came out of nowhere is a river. So Blake Gentry has been working with someone called uh, Brander. They both have really good blogs, which I recommend you check out. And I like people who blog. They released something called River, which is uh, a queue management system sort of thing for... How how do you spell that, (laughs) queue? Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, Queue as in where uh, European people stand nicely in line and Israeli cut. That sort of queue. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, you know, there's uh, literally a data structure called an Israeli queue where tasks <laughs> self-insert themselves based on self-assigned priority and they can cut other tasks in line. Um, yeah. So uh, River is basically a background job library uh, based on Postgres. So I think it's very, and you're going to laugh, right? Because that library was called Q, Q-U-E-Go, which is a port of the Q, Q-U-E library from Ruby. So all the projects we're uh-huh. covering today are called Q in some form. And what I really like about it, uh, and you can check out the blog post, it's the like fourth iteration of this system. They've been working on it in Ruby first, where it was like a Ruby on Rails monolith, and then they wrote it in Go as a port. And this is the like reimagined, redesigned thing, the sort of grand rewrite in the sky. 
So I imagine it already has a lot of thought into it, even if it just looks simple, you know, oh, a background jobs in Postgres, just write the job ID in, in the table and then read it and it's going to be fine. There's a lot of, if you really want to get full transactional asset guarantees, it's going to, it's going to be hard. And they sort of figured all the little things out. I took a look at the library. It looks really, really, really strong and it's still early. But I think if you have background jobs and sort of a go back end going on and you already use Postgres, should really give uh, River a spin because it just looks boutique. It, it looks artisanal, looks really, really well done. And I really I have a thing at, at work right now where people want some sort of cron service that's really easy and, and they just want to send messages and get stuff done. So I'm going to try it with River first. It's sort of new, so it's scary, but I hope it, it's going to work out fine. You know, that, that raises a question in my mind. Why do we need River if we already had QGO and if we already have you know, a thousand other implementations? Why is it so common to reinvent the wheel? Ah, nice go? one. Many people, including a bunch of Redditors, which on average are, are less than a person, but uh, in the Golang subreddit, I think they're fine. The like top or, or second top uh, post on uh, r slash Golang for the month was, why is reinventing the wheel so prominent in Go by Lord Bertson? U uh, slash Lord Bertson on on uh, Reddit, where he basically uh, says people try to shove things into Go, like from uh, functional programming languages, like monadic error handling, result types, and powerful type systems and stuff like that, and sort of asking why <laughs> reinventing the wheel is so popular in Go. Why is that? My opinion, mm-hmm. because it's a programming language. Uh, I've I've never seen a language that doesn't have this phenomenon. When I was in Perl, we had libraries that were ports of things from other things, from C, from Java, from Ruby, whatever. The whole MVC framework we used was basically a Perl version of Ruby on Rails. So yeah, I think this happens in every language. Which which one doesn't do that? I would like to know. I think it is actually like a human, a cultural thing, right? You come from a company where, I don't know, talking all day about our AI is really important. And then you go to a company where you work in Python and you're like, everything has to be a context manager. Uh, or if you're coming from a place where you maintained a lot of libraries and then you start working in Go, you're like, wait, but why do I, I really want every single function to be in a different GitHub repository, even though it's not really the Go way, because everything should be a small library and installable. I think people just carry over like cultural baggage from the previous things they they worked at. And also, I think that a lot of the like, oh, I did monadic error handling, blah, blah, blah. It's usually like a hobbyist thing. I, I can't imagine mm-hmm. accepting a practical, pragmatic PR that's about Go at work and the person being like, oh, I was four days late, but now we have, uh, you know, result types. And I'm like, it has to come from <laughs> the entire quote unquote guild. Like a lot of time, workplaces have a guild, right? All the Go developers, all the yeah. Python developers, yeah. all the web developers, et cetera, et cetera. And if it comes from the group, like someone sends a blog post and people, it resonates with people and then blah, 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 and it's fine. That's great. Like that's a really good way to import smart ideas from other languages. But overall, I think it's not that good of a trait. Like people tend to rediscover and reinvent things that already exist, mostly because they're inexperienced. And it's definitely there's so much more to learn now about programming languages and 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 other the concepts and other languages and the comparisons between them to make a good choice and 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 do the thing the language is good at and not waste a ton of time doing something the language isn't good at just because you think it's cool. On the other hand, I'll play devil's advocate a little bit here. I think. There is good that comes from this that in that we get to learn new ways to do things. And, you know, especially when language is, is brand new, it goes 15, almost 15 years old now. So it's not that new, but it's still new enough that we're still learning some of the patterns to use, especially with new features like generics. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't necessarily know all the right ways to do this. So experimenting with functional programming paradigms or whatever is probably appropriate to, to try to learn, you know, what, what is good. But we shouldn't just start throwing that into production code. It should be a little, hobby experiments at first. Yeah, I think the comments mostly disagree with the like the premise of the question that everybody in Go is trying to reinvent all the time. And they're sort of saying what you're saying, where, for example, K Reddit Brown says, you know, that it's not just a Go issue. It's just a, like different communities of developers all over. And the, personally, they enjoy 
seeing people do that, but you know, these patterns aren't going to be used in professional working environments unless it's like a tech lead or a senior person with really good reasons and you know, they have a lot of experience in Go and stuff like that. Obviously, going down the comments, it gets worse. <laughs> and one comment I really liked was, because this is Reddit, the platform where people vent their obviously superior opinions. <laughs> awesome. I don't know why I, I hate Reddit, Reddit so much, but I do have one other post I wanted to discuss, which I liked, actually. Is it stupid to have right. a Go backend and the Next.js frontend? Um, I have no opinion. I mean, other than I would never use Next.js because it has JS in the name. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I'm the maintainer of Gopher.js. It yeah, has JS in the name, so I don't know. <laughs> well, let's start writing that regex. If the you know back back uh, capture group has JS but doesn't have Go, something like that. Yeah, right? we can't use that reg regex in Go. We'll All right, use, it doesn't uh, have uh, overlap matching we, as we've learned. Um, so I, I think that like the question, if you're familiar, if you're unfamiliar with Next.js, the whole thing they're doing right now is trying to do TypeScript on the front end, on the back end in a singular project where you have server side rendering and you have server components. And it's also super tied in commercially with uh, Vercel who are like selling this complete serverless package where you use their SDKs, you use their libraries, you get are you out of the box, you get, well, that's what they're saying, at least. I, I'm, I have a project on Vercel and I have a lot of gripes with this whole like batteries included experience where the moment you try to do something slightly different, you know, that suddenly the pricing doesn't work, suddenly you can't get metrics. Out. Like it's, it's very anti-hacker friendly, uh, I think. And it's very like low code vibes, even though it is code. So I personally don't like it. But the, the premise of the question is there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with Next.js in, in, on the front end because like it has Vercel, a huge company behind it. And they're pushing a lot of marketing material and developer time into this framework. But the way it works really well is if you have Next.js on the back end as well. And I don't think it's stupid to have a Go back end and a Next.js front end. But like the premise of the question is, does this have an extra layer of work? And I would say yes, actually. Like this really, I, I thought about it for a while and discussed it with some other architects at the company where I work. And I think, yeah, I think using the super heavy loaded JavaScript framework, if you're using Go, is sort of anti the mentality. Like you have a very thin runtime and a very simple language for the backend. Why can't you have a really simple uh, and thin framework for the front end? Why not go with Svelte or start with vanilla JS? Why not? Like until you need something. So it's not stupid. Uh, you slash teach me how to jung, but it is a good question. And I hope you decided to go with uh, Go just with the standard library and vanilla JS, because these are two skills that will still be relevant to make money in a year. Where if Vercel uh, goes out of business, all your Next.js experience is going to be worthless. Uh, and I'm saying that as someone who actually has a project in Next.js and very regretful. TypeScript on the backend is an illusion doesn't actually work. So that's at least the fun things I saw on Reddit this uh, holiday season. So speaking of Reddit, there's one that uh, came to my attention on Reddit that I thought was a little bit interesting. Somebody did a benchmark of six different Go SQLite drivers, some using Seago, some pure Go, and their, their conclusion, you don't need Seago anymore. The pure Go implementations of SQLite are fast enough. So I thought that's kind of cool. Uh, I don't know if they're necessarily as fast but they're fast enough and uh, they have some nice little colorful charts if you like colors then uh, this chart is for you uh talking about you know the performance across these different uh implementations uh the one we're probably most familiar with is matt end implementation which does use seago and it is a database sql driver so it works with the standard library some of the others don't use the standard sql interface uh one of those that's probably worth mentioning explicitly is a, a new one that was just released uh, a few weeks ago uh, called Zombie Zen slash Go slash SQLite. That sounds interesting. Yeah, I'm excited about this one mainly because we had a nice interview with the author of this package. And he, uh, you'll be listening to that here in just a few minutes if you stick around, of course. In that interview, he talks about how this really isn't, I mean, he, he's standing on the shoulders of giants with this. 
he talks about at least two other uh, packages that uh, he heavily borrows from. And some of those are in the benchmark here as well. So it's it's an interesting week or month for SQLite News in Go. Yeah, the, the summary of the benchmark is really interesting where... You can't really have a winner because it depends on the use case. If you have uh, small data, if you have complex data, if you have large data sets, if you want to do stuff concurrently, some packages stand out more than others in like different scenarios. It does highlight ZombieSend as being pretty fast. And that MATN, even though it's like the standard, is not the best overall solution. It like doesn't win out in any category. So I think it's again a case... We had we had a similar discussion. We we're talking about JSON, like you know, marshalling and unmarshalling with uh, Lunar, right? Where we you have to really know what you want and which library you want to pick if you want to super optimize on a really hot path through your code's flow. Uh, and you you really can't just go with the lowest common denominator option if you have a, a specific use case where you want to improve it. Again, another uh, chance to mention. Uh, my favorite feature from the last like year of Go, which is a uh, PGO. If you don't have C, then you can uh, use profilers to optimize your compiler even more. Although it's hard for me to believe it's going to be faster than C. You know what I mean? Yeah, you can have some pretty bad C. Although SQLite's C is is pretty pretty tight. I think. <laughs> I think all we need now is a zero allocation version of SQLite because that's sort of the the gold standard for fast and Go, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that's possible, but no, no. <laughs> In memory, no memory, DB. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> zero calories, zero sugar. <laughs> SQLite <laughs> implementation. There's another SQL uh, news-related thing, uh, Marmot, which I found like super interesting, even though I can't figure out a single use, like, use case for it. <laughs> so what's Marmot? Other than an animal that's like a gopher, which I just figured out. God, I'm stupid. Yeah, <laughs> it's a queuing system. Actually, I don't think it is, but uh, I just wanted to throw that in there just so we could talk mm-hmm. about queuing again. Um, it is a distributed SQLite replicator that uses NATs. I, I like NATs. There's in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just reading through uh, designing data-intensive applications, and mm-hmm. the fact that I understand this first sentence, uh, distributed SQLite replicator with leaderless and eventual consistency. The fact that I can figure out what this means after reading the book and that I would be totally intimidated by this uh, sentence before probably means that if you haven't read Designing Data Intensive Applications or you don't work in data engineering, you probably don't need Marmot. Um, yeah. <laughs> but basically, if you have a SQLite but you want to replicate it across different nodes, this can allow you to do that built on top of Net's Jetstream. There's a ton of use cases where I can imagine this being useful if you want to like carry a change data capture between nodes, like when something has been written to SQLite and you want to get that change in another system. But I honestly just can't see the use case where you have something like this set up and you're not like, okay, time for me to set up Postgres. But I, you know, I guess if you just like SQLite and and it's a really good fit for uh, what you have and you don't need to like go to a single primary because you can write on a single node. Maybe for like really distributed applications, uh, something like this is going to be useful. It seems very niche, I agree. I have one niche where I know I, I saw a similar implementation, but it's a bit of a uh, it's a bit of a journey if you'll go with me. So when I worked right. at Guardicore, I was in the labs team where it's I just wrote some code, but there were really, really, you know, high level reverse engineers that reverse engineers, uh, reverse engineer a Go uh, malware. It would install on your server and start mining crypto. And in order to be like super fault tolerant and stuff like that, it didn't have a single command and control server. It was completely leaderless. They just like try to mine crypto and whenever one would win, they would replicate, you know, the coins they stole basically across the network. And they like had a whole algorithm of like voting for different leaders and rotating them and and, uh, stuff like that. It's not a great, uh, you know, Maybe it's not uh, good for humanity, but this is a really, really good place where you'd want to write on every node, right? You don't want to have a single primary DB that you write to because you don't know how many computers you're going to infect and you don't know whatever. So if you're developing a you know distributed uh, crypto miner in Go, my team's going to find you. But until we find you, you should probably use Marmon. <laughs> 
I was about to say, I think I have my next project, but, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so a ton of SQLite stuff or and SQL in general stuff. And we have even more people sent us in the channel. We just can't go through everything, right? Yeah, the channel's been pretty active over the holiday break. Yeah, yeah, more than I've expected. But CC Go and CC and blah, 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 a lot of stuff. Thanks, Michai, for the super interesting uh, links and the connection to Ross on the channel. And yeah, we're going to have an interview coming up right after this. Stick around. Cup of Go is not sponsored. If you want to help us find the sponsor, please reach out in the channel. And this is a good place to remind you all how to reach us. Our domain is kapago.dev. We're mostly active on the Gopher Slack, hashtag kapago, kebab case with hyphens. If you're a gopher and you haven't joined the Gopher Slack, it's a really good community. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. And there's a lot of sub-channels for your geographical area, your topics of interest, and just random memes and whatever. And you can also email us at news at kapago.dev. That is news at kapago.dev. If you like the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it. That's a really good way to keep the show uh, going, coming back after season, after last year and after the holiday season. We want to hopefully get the show into new years and new people and uh, keep the ball rolling for 2024. If you want to support the show more directly, uh, we also have a merch shop where we have some apparel, some shirts, some hoodies. And our top selling item right now, at least, is a, a mug, which makes sense because the show is called Cup of Go and it's all about like coffee and whatever. So you can buy some merch there to help us uh, cover the cost of running the show. Thanks for listening. And here's our interview with Ross Light, the author of Zombie Zen Go SQLite. Hey, Shy. What's up, man? Have you ever had problems with Seago? Oh, yes, I have. Yeah, I was recently coding and I built a new library. It was super great. And I tried to run it in production and it, the production build failed due to an SQLite error that didn't, didn't work because it was a Seago library and we were building a non-Seago binary. Who can I talk to to help fix this problem? Well, for you specifically, I would go to Amira and talk to Amira because the problem is you. But generally people who program, you know, all the other people who program and have Seago SQLite problems can probably, you know, go ask Ross Light. Hey, that's a great idea. Hello. Hi, Ross. Hey, what's up, man? (laughs) I finally can do a joke on someone's uh, last name and I can say that you could shed some light on the situation. But I'm ching. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) What's up, Ross? Welcome on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Right. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and about SQLite or Go SQLite, I should say. Yeah. Yeah, start there. It's going to be interesting sort of talking through this because we're going to have a lot of different uh, import paths uh, to talk about. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, as you mentioned, uh, I'm the maintainer of a uh, SQLite package called zombiesn.com slash go slash SQLite. Uh, and you can check it out there. That's a fully valid URL that redirects to the package docs and all that. Um, and one of the big selling points of it is that it does not require Seago. It uh, runs as totally a pure Go binary. And it's, I would love to take credit for, ah, this is all my genius idea, but this is built on top of uh, some wonderfully, you know, on the, the shoulders of giants, some wonderfully great packages that came before. In particular, a lot of the work of actually reducing the Seago uh, element uh, was a lot of work done by uh, Jan Merkel, who uh, created modernc.org slash SQLite, which is another package that you can go check out. And in particular, that library is sort of what the Zombies N package, my package, is built on top of. But modernc.org slash SQLite provides sort of the standard database SQL interface that you might expect from the standard library. And the library that I have decidedly does not do that. Uh, It provides a more direct uh, layer, uh, or it provides an API layer that is more close to the original C SQLite uh, library than what you can get from database SQL. So the particular API that it follows is inspired by, but actually takes a number of different departures from another SQLite package that uh, was written by David Crawshaw a number of years ago. Uh, that one is crawshaw.io slash SQLite. 
So you'll, you're noticing a trend here probably of that uh, each one of these you differentiate between uh, with different domain names. Yeah, that, it looks like there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, there's certainly a lot of them. And I think um, I was seeing some article out there. Um, how did you just, and it's, well, it's more a personal interest question. When, when you decided to use your personal domain for your import path, what were the pros and cons you weighed? Because I've considered doing the same for some of my packages. Yeah, so particularly early on, um, one of the main downsides was just you had to make sure that you had good reliability because before the Go module proxy um, was in there, uh, there was, I mean, there were a number of things where it was just, I'd get emails from people that were uh, understandably bad because they'd be trying to install a package uh, in their CI machine and, and it would just barf. And yeah. because the site would be down for this, that, or the other reason. I think originally I was running the site off of App Engine. It's had a very long history of running over a lot of different things, but I use Firebase hosting now and it's just static files for precisely this reason of I want it to have yeah. the highest uptime I possibly can throw at the problem. So like the biggest downside is that if you do anything complicated in the domain serving path that serves your import, then someone's going to get mad at you. Uh, but the great yeah. part is, is that you can do all sorts of things on the back end of if you move repositories over time. When I was originally writing packages, I actually was using Mercurial on Bitbucket. And there's a number of packages that have kept the same import path um, for many years. This isn't as much of a problem anymore since now everybody seems to kind of be on GitHub. But for a while there, it was like every, you know, every few years you'd be on a different uh, source hosting provider because... Um, those were the days of SourceForge and all that. So, the thing that I like about it is that if I visit zombiesend.com, I get your like cool site and blog, which yeah. y'all listening should check out as well. After you import the package, just you know, snip off the package and uh, go visit it in your favorite uh, browser. Which now thinking about our audience, you know, we might have like two percent on links, so <laughs> make sure you're <laughs> it works links on is too fancy. I just use curl. I tell them to port at 443. You you just use curl? Oh yeah, real programmers just use net HTTP. Why do you why do you need anything? Why do you need C? Just use pure Go uh, commands. I love the idea here that rather than using something like links, just like directly curling and then interpreting the HTML output yourself. Just I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have a whiteboard here, so I can write out. You know, I can center things. You know, wow, yeah, you got all the layout algorithm. Uh, if it's W three C compliant, then who cares, right? Exactly, exactly. So, I think maybe we should take a step back, and you know, probably all of our of the uh, the people listening know what a database is. Um, but I think most people heard SQLite when they like first learned SQL, they just used it to learn like the basic commands and then they used the quote unquote real database. But I don't think, you know, you would spend so much time and so many people would spend so much time on something that just like is there to teach you select star and then move on. Um, where would SQLite be useful, you know, other than these like POC projects where you're just starting to learn or you're just waiting on until you set up a real quote yeah, that's a great question. And uh, truth be told, that was one of the questions that I had many years back when I first started um, using SQLite, because that is generally the context that most people first get introduced uh, to it is, hey, I'm writing my whatever app and uh, cool, I'm swapping that database out for using SQLite instead of Postgres, let's say, so that you have a very easy way of testing and that you know, then you use, yeah, as you say, a real database once you've got production. To me, the interesting part that I think a lot of people don't realize is that SQLite actually, especially in recent years, over like the last five, six, seven years, SQLite has actually added a bunch of features that are on par or in some places like, you know, hard to find in other database engines. Um, and one of the things in particular is just not having to do a... Uh, like a full server setup. Um, for ease of development, you don't have to spin up a full server. It's just a file that's sitting um, sitting on your database and or on your disk rather. And um, for small to medium, you know, traffic sites or whatever, because not every single problem do you need to scale up to your entire customer base. You may have something where, hey, I have an internal service or something that I'm just serving to um, a handful of people or you know. Uh, small cases that uh, 
that sort of model really fits. Um, I have a number of websites, and this was kind of how I originally got into it, where I was downloading a whole bunch of data um, from Wikidata, and I think I was originally using IMDb, I forget all the details now, where I was doing sort of the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon sort of calculation between uh, different things and different movies to kind of do that. And that's, I love this as a whiteboard question, you'd think that that would be a vast data set. It only ends up being about 80 megabytes um, when you you know, get everything down to just the titles and the actors that are in it. 80 megabytes. Fantastic. I can then have that data set, use the exact same one on my local machine, and then copy it out to production and use that to, you know, do that analysis. And that's very easy to QA versus having to run up a whole server process or like check different things or log into a box or whatever. It's just like, nope, this is just a file that I can pass around and I can run SQL statements on it and query it and uh, analyze it and do everything that I would want to do in both settings without having the complexity so cool you mentioned testing as well but like wouldn't i need like i can't really test with uh sqlite when i run go test and then i run with uh like postgres in production right or do you know people who have that setup because that sounds uh, a bit spicy i've done it <laughs> not really Jonathan oh yeah all right <laughs> You are absolutely right. It's one where I wouldn't generally encourage this sort of thing. I think I think in the Go community, um, Go generally, uh, folks don't use ORMs nearly as much. So I'm more comparing to some more of my knowledge um, in sort of pre-Go days of uh, working on like Django or Rails apps, that sort of thing, where that's a very common thing. But I think for most users that would be um, in the Go community, that would be looking at these sort of trade-offs, yeah, they'd come to the same conclusion of like, um, and I will also tell you, it's like, if you're running a, a Postgres application, you, you know, test with Postgres locally, uh, please. You're going to save yourself a lot of headaches. So I'd actually, I'd rather say that SQLite is kind of its own thing. If you're writing a CLI, for instance, where you're running something that's on a local box or something and that you need to store data and that that data is very mutable. So it's not something where it's like, hey, I have a JSON file that comes in or I have some other config, but it's something that you need to change over the course of your program and maybe multiple processes need to be working on that same file at the same time. SQLite's a great choice. And if you're o- you only, your traffic is to the needs of like a very beefy disk or you know whatever where you can fit it within a single VM, SQLite's also pretty great choice. Um, anytime where you need to have some kind of storage need, but you don't want to have all the overhead of running your own database, um, I'd say give SQLite at least consideration um, for your particular use case. Cool. And let's say, you know, you convinced me. I, I, I found a use case in my company, an internal tool that, you know, only needs to scale to the R&D size and not to all the customer size, for example. Um, then why is the no C thing such a big deal? Yeah, great you know question. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, truth be told, there's uh, other than the fact, of course, that that we all love Go and yes. Go is the best language, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. For for any Go maintainers listening. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, again, um, it's, you know, it can kind of go either way of that, you know, there may be some circumstances where, you know, having that perfect, like, I have this particular modified copy of SQLite, or I need to link it with a library, whatever, that may still work. But if you're doing anything where you're doing cross compilation, for example, maybe you have um, a Mac machine that you are trying to compile for Linux or vice versa, um, and you're trying to do that sort of cross compilation, that's one where as soon as you have C go inside of your binary, um, then it makes your deploy process a lot more complicated because you have to have all the libraries available for being able to do link um, as well as the headers and all that sort of thing. So that's one of the big advantages of not having C go in the process. Um, and it also makes the debugging easier. Um, one of the weird things, I didn't even anticipate this when I was first like hooking up the library, but uh, if you have something that goes wrong of like, oh, uh, why is this behavior happening on you know, this particular version of SQLite or whatever, you can just pop open Delve and have it like do a stack trace inside of the you know, transpiled SQLite code that's there, and you can run the race detector. So you actually can detect concurrency bugs and all sorts of things that you wouldn't be able to do uh, if you had Sego inside of your binary. So now you got me thinking, when looking at this like C versus Go uh, libraries for SQLite, I saw that the C1 is still slightly faster, right? 
slightly. Yeah, yeah. Now with PGO, maybe we can, <laughs> for specific workloads, we can have like a faster SQLite that's read-heavy or a faster SQLite that's write-heavy because it's all pure Go. Yeah, I that seems certainly feasible to me. I, I hadn't even considered that possibility, but yes, absolutely, Shai. <laughs> all right, so this is a rare uh, thing for interviews, but... I'm writing down an action item for later to talk yep, to you yep. about. <laughs> Noting over here. <laughs> Jonathan, you're invited to. <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious how you decided to use a, an API that was more similar to the C libraries API rather than database SQL or even PGX. There's there's several database yeah. uh, APIs out there. How did you decide on this one? Yeah, um, I'll be honest, a lot of the sort of original thought that went into this, um, a lot of credit I, I would give to David Crawshaw, who wrote a really great blog post um, I'll send over here, hopefully, you know, show notes or uh, what have you. Yep, we'll put it um, in there. That kind of goes through um, uh, some of the rationale um, behind it, but there's a lot of, because of this sort of in-process model that SQLite has, um, there there's a lot of really great things that you can do that are specific to SQLite that wouldn't make sense in a general database adapter. One of the uh, the common things that people are surprised um, to hear that you can do with SQLite that you would be really difficult or weird to do with like Postgres, right, is um, SQLite is actually fantastic if you want to store a lot of like really large binary blobs inside of the database, which is normally one of those things that when you're first introduced to a SQL database, you're told, please don't do that. You're just going to kill everything about, you know, concurrency and, you know, sending it over the wire and all this sort of stuff. But with SQLite, it's just in process and you're just reading something off of a disk and it has a whole paging thing. So one of the things that you can do with SQLite is you can say, give me a blob that's this size and then you can just have an IO reader, IO writer, IO seeker that can just operate mm. on that particular blob object and it's directly reading and writing to disk. Um, and there's a, a bunch of wonderful utilities that like David Crawshaw had originally uh, published for like using this to implement a number of common types like bytes.buffer or os.file, but with like a SQLite sort of slant on them where you've got like, uh, you know, SQLite.file, SQLite.buffer um, sort of thing, where you can just write and not have to think about it, and it just acts like the normal Go interfaces that you'd expect, but it's operating on disk um, and has all the same ACID um, atomic consistent isolation and durability guarantees that you'd have with the rest of the SQLite database. That's really cool. And we recently, when was uh, encoding JSON 2 a thing? Remember we talked about it, Jonathan? A few months ago. Yeah, we we interviewed uh, Joe Sai about that. Uh, I don't remember a couple months ago, three months ago. So you know JSON, which is like a, you, we have a, a few different things we do in programs, right? Which is like encode and decode JSON and write and read from databases, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> that's all. I remember, Doctor. So um, you know JSON got a V two. Um, do you think maybe some of the lessons from you know? From this like like SQLite interface and maybe PGX and all these sort of alternative database slash SQL interfaces can go into database SQL v2 or is database SQL good just not a good fit for SQLite specifically? Yeah, I would say that database SQL. It's been a while since I've personally been using database SQL for like specific day to day sort of stuff, and I think a lot of for a lot of what you would want out of like a Postgres or a MySQL, that sort of thing. The interface works pretty well. Um, you know, there's a few things where it would be nice to clean up some of the context sort of um, stuff that's there where that kind of had to get bolted on a little bit later. But in terms of just, hey, it does the job and, you know, allows you to do different queries and things, um, I think that works pretty well. I think sort of the difference here um, with an interface um, like this and the Zombies End package that um, I've uh, published is that it is something where it's taking advantage of some of the things that are more specific of SQLite that wouldn't make nearly as much sense 
for uh, doing another libraries there's um the blob example is kind of like the the, the one that i outlined before of um, blobs and all that is one of those interfaces but there's a number of other things that you can do like being able to say hi i would like an entire dump of the database please and please send it to this io.writer or this or you know recover it back from this io.reader um there's also a few other sort of things if you want to allow somebody to like do a uh, uh, select query or something, but you don't want them to be able to do inserts and updates, but you want to be able to do like sort of arbitrary operations. There's like a whole API that SQLite has for being able to do that sort of authorization sort of thing. Whereas in, uh, you know, traditional database SQL sense, you would just do that with like grant and all the other sort of normal hackle sort of things that you would do in a traditional database system. And those sort of APIs just wouldn't be appropriate for a general purpose uh, SQL database connector. So I have my first feature request. I want the ability to open not a file, but an IO read write seeker so that I can read and write a SQLite database that's stored inside of a SQLite database. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I want SQLite Inception. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I. <laughs> Feasible, like, a serious request, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, in thinking of just like what you could do from like, because SQLite also, I don't think that I expose this in the package, but there is like a whole virtual file system interface. It's possible. Uh -huh. You could probably do it. Um, <laughs> pull requests, welcome. I'm going to regret those words. But. <laughs> yeah. Y'all wondering only if you could, but not if you should. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> we, we definitely Jeff should not. Yeah, probably should not. Because obviously what we need to do is to run Doom on this thing. Yes. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So we have SQLite and we want to use it. And it doesn't have any uh, C code in it because it was based on an auto-translation. You mentioned the word transpile from C, right? Yes. What does that mean? that you transpile C into Go? Yeah, so the transpilation process, um, for those who may not be familiar with the term, transpile is a common term uh, to describe uh, rather than compiling your code. You are transpiling code to take it from uh, one programming language to go into a different programming language. So in this case, there is a lot of work, and this is what, uh, again, full credit to Jan Merkel, who built this amazing piece of tech, um, but over the course of many years had created this wonderful, like, effectively full C compiler that, like, understands the entire C language um, and will take in C as input and then put Go out onto the other side of it. And you can examine the code uh, for yourself. It generates mountains upon mountains of code that's actually generally inspectable and looks mostly like Go code. But there's a number of weird things that you can do in C that uh, don't quite translate into the Go memory model. So there's a whole thing in there of like being able to sort of translate these sort of like raw pointer accesses into things that look kind of like a Go, but use unsafe pointers in a somewhat unsavory way, but it hides all the details of that. So the package at the other end, if you go to modernc.org slash SQLite slash lib, it spits out this giant thing that is one for one, exactly the same as the SQLite library that exists that you can look up the .h files for and all the documentation, but all of it uses unsafe.pointer, and it's wildly painful to like try to parse that together to like figure that out and like make sure that you're not accidentally dereferencing a bad pointer or something. So that's most of what my library comes in and does is sort of takes those raw, almost Seago-like bindings and then just kind of does the extra little bit of logic to say like, okay, and here it is so that you're not having to import unsafe because presumably uh, you trust me enough that I have done the correct unsafe.pointer things so that you don't have to. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's why we don't just transpile uh, like a bunch of other C libraries like FFmpeg or NumPy or Redis into into Go because yeah the the result is not super easy to use yeah and there's a lot of um and I'm glossing over a lot of technical details here because uh, even in just the sort of thing that I initially said of hey but 
when I said C, what version do you mean of C? And that's been sort of the thing is, is that, yeah, different versions of different projects will use different GNU compiler extensions and everything. And that's sort of where um, Jan and I have collaborated a number of times of finding like, oh, hey, there's this weird bug where under this set, set of circumstances, the C compiler doesn't exactly translate the thing correctly because there's this weird edge case on the spec and like that sort of thing going back and forth. But it works well enough that it passes the full like SQLite um, uh, test suite. This is a, a very common thing that I get asked when people are like, that sounds horrible. Why should I trust that this thing works at all? Um, as it turns out, SQLite is specifically well-suited for this because it has this really extensive test suite that verifies that the end result is, it is okay. And SQLite also limits itself to a very, very narrowly defined, like, I forget whether it's ANSI C or C99 or whatever, but it's one of the, like, older versions of the spec. So it's very, very tightly considered and portable C code to begin with um, that's also very well tested. So it's very uniquely suited to this sort of process of, here, transpile it, make sure that it's running correctly for a subset of C, and then on top of that, here's all these tests that you can use to make sure that it's actually running the way that you expect that it's doing. But it only works on certain architectures, and I know that Jan's been working in um, recent years to bring it to even more, but yeah, when I originally put out the library, it only worked on Mac and uh, Linux and only specific architectures, but now it works on Windows and it works on, I think it works on BSD and RISC-V and all sorts of things now. I'm, I've been keeping up with that uh, nearly as much as I should. <laughs> does, does this cool. extensive test suite test the API or the file format or both? Yes. It does both. <laughs> all of the above. Okay. <laughs> it tests a lot of things. Um, I, okay. I think I would be remiss. I think there is something technically where like the SQLite developers only expose some parts of the test suite to the rest of the world and some of like some of it they keep to themselves. I forget exactly what the deal is. So there it's not like I think there are there's a couple different levels of test suites, but the one that's out there in the public is really pretty good and at least as long as it's passing that one, I, I at least feel pretty comfortable. I've never had anything where it's behaved incorrectly in production, um, versus other SQLite implementations. And you can use like Lightstream, which is like a replication service on it and all sorts of other things that weren't intended for being used with this. It works pretty well out of the box with. So so, so your your library is both API and file format compatible, correct? Yeah. I, I yeah. would expect so, yeah. Yeah. And file format even with doing like weird stuff of like Lightstream depends on specific details of like the journaling of how like not even just like the file itself but like the file as the transaction is occurring on disk so all sorts of things that uh it just kind of gets for free because it is quite literally the exact same source code um as what c sqlite is using you started the interview by saying you're gonna have to uh, mention a lot of import paths um one of them that i want to talk about is the migration package oh, uh yeah. Every Go ORM that I've used has like its own flavor of migrations. Like I really like personally the uh, make migrations from uh, bun uptrace. I think that's pretty elegant and kind of stays out of your way. The way you've done it in, in the SQLite uh, migrations package is really nice. You just have a struct that has the migrations and then the very, very utilitarian repeatable migrations, which is creating all the views at the end. Jonathan, what have you used to like, you know, manage migrations, you know, for projects? Great question. I just wrote my own library this uh, about two weeks ago for a new client because I was I couldn't find one that wasn't full of bells and whistles I didn't want. <laughs> so why do you think, you know, Go does ship with database, right? And after you use a database for a day, almost by definition, you need migrations. Should we ship like built-in support for migrations? I've gone back and forth about this um, over the years. It's a good question. So we kind of talked earlier in the interview about where SQLite kind of differs in kind of use cases um, versus other uh, SQL databases. And I think that's kind of, for a traditional SQL database like Postgres or MySQL or um, Mongo, I guess is not really, you know, whatever, but any, any sort of SQL database, <laughs> you need some kind of... As part of your deploy process, you need to think about how you are doing those migrations. And some of that's Go-specific, but I've actually been kind of intrigued by a lot of the projects that try to do a lot of these things in a, like, 
somewhat language neutral sort of way. And actually, one of the the package that I wrote for uh, zombiesend.com slash go slash SQLite um, is uh, one that is based off of sort of the approach that Flyway takes, where it's sort of like the same sort of thing of like, you just have a whole bunch of SQL files in a directory, and then there's repeatable ones for dealing with the whole view thing, and then you're out. That That's kind of the thing, and it kind of, you need to have a JVM installed to run the executable, but other than that, it doesn't care too terribly much about, you know, what language you're using. It does make more of a difference once you're using kind of more of an ORM, but if you're using queries directly, I think it then kind of becomes more of a question of like, hey, do you just put some SQL files in there? Um, I think it could be interesting to to see something that is uh, more standardized um, for the Go ecosystem, but I'm not exactly sure what that would look like, especially in the standard library. I think in some ways it's probably good that it's more coupled to the development life cycles of each of these different packages. Um, so. Cool. I, I I really want your interface to be the default one, though, because then people <laughs> will just use a bunch of SQL files and ORMs will die out. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I basically did sort of what Jonathan did of that, you know, uh, I kind of had the same problem of I got to the end of this and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to try to use this package and some of my, you know, code here. I don't have a migration library that works with this, so I'm just going to have to kind of write my own. And I messed it up a whole bunch. It was definitely the part of the project that I messed up the most. There are all sorts of things where I was getting bugs years later where it's like, oh, this works under all these conditions. But if you fail at exactly this point in the transaction, then everything blows up. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to manage your data. Sorry. <laughs> it's a hard problem. I'm wondering if it's considered like, you know, uncool move to like wingman your uh, migrations library into my own proposal. <laughs> hey, it, you know, uh, I'm I, I'm happy of like if, if someone finds anything that I write useful, like I I'm I'm just happy to see good ideas and you know people be happy using stuff. So you know, it, if you would like to, I I say go for it. I think if you want it accepted, you should probably take uh, Jonathan should probably sponsor it because my hey, proposals have a tendency to get rejected. <laughs> I had one rejected just like boom, ten minutes later. <laughs> Oof! Yeah, um, Automod band. Oh no! <laughs> All, All right, right. Um, we're coming to a close here. Uh, if people want to reach out to you and you know uh, hang out with you, how can they do it? Yeah. Um, so uh, as uh, I've been kind of indirectly doing the plug throughout the whole thing here, but uh, my web presence is at uh, zombiezen.com. There's a whole bunch of links there to all the other things, and I've got a blog and um, all that sort of thing, and there's contact details and all that. So check me out at zombiezen.com. Cool. So last year, we asked people to close out the interview. Uh, what would they add and what would they remove from Go? And we just have had enough applicants that we pretty much covered all the answers. We've designed Go 3 already, so we're ready to move on. Yeah, print without parents this time. <laughs> we're going back on it. So uh, this year we're shaking it up. What was the first version of Go you've used? Yeah, um, so uh, unfortunately I'm not exactly... I don't remember exactly. I've been following Go since uh, public release in November of 2009. Um, so back then it was just commit hashes and such. Um, been following it ever since all the way through 1.0. I think the only time that I stopped was for a brief period of time when they had the whole... I was kind of mad with the whole curly brace having to be on the same line sort of thing, if you if you can believe it. Um, and then <laughs> dropped it and then kind of came back. You know what's that called? It's Egyptian style. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> People can't see it, but yeah, we're doing the little Egyptian hand. Oh, hand right. Thing it's, it. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, been been with Go for a long time. Um, and yeah, I was just uh, really happy to have the opportunity uh, uh, to work on the Go team at uh, Google for 2016 through 2019. So yeah, it's been been a heck of a fun journey. So following up on that, I, I want to ask, actually, we, we, we talked before recording what we were going to say. I want to ask a slightly different question. We can still get back to the main one. But what was the biggest challenge in learning Go back then? What, what was the biggest uh, or surprise when you first started using Go? Yeah, um, I think the channels uh, and sort of the concurrency part was definitely, it's kind of interesting to see how it's played out, you know, this many years uh, onward. But that was one of the big things that people were like, but 
don't you have to like think about threads and like locking and all that and the channels were really um an interesting sort of like you know mind warp sort of moment of uh trying to figure out how that worked versus uh different concurrency mechanisms but it's it's funny how over the course of using the language that collectively the community kind of figured out, actually the most powerful part of Go's concurrency primitives is generally that you shouldn't be thinking about them. Instead of having to write, you know, just tons and tons of futures and all that sort of thing like you would have to do it in um, JavaScript or Python or even Rust, um, that Go just kind of makes it like, you know, folks are familiar with the the blog post of uh, what color is your function. You don't have to worry about function colors in Go. It's just, I call a thing, it may block, and it will, you know, it documents what will happen by the time that it exits, and you just let the language kind of deal with the concurrency for you. And I think that's been kind of the interesting unlearning sort of thing, um, for, for me at least, has been kind of seeing what you don't have to do to be successful. Um, with Go and just how easy it is to kind of pick things up. And that's, that's been really inspiring to me. That's a good one. Um, right. Awesome. Well, Ross, thanks a lot for jumping on the show. Yeah, thanks for I having hope me. Jonathan has managed to resolve his, uh, Seago issues. By I think now. I have solved them. Yeah. I'm still waiting on my C on my GCC to finish compiling here. So I have a, a while to go. <laughs> thanks all for awesome. coming on, man. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time.